The Holy Gospel according to John, the 10th chapter. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand who is not the shepherd does not, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. I was with you just a few weeks ago, and in that sermon I shared with you how the resurrection of Christ and our hope in the resurrection, the resurrection of our bodies, following, of course, our own deaths, all were rooted in some tremendous Old Testament text and promises, one being the book of Daniel. I shared how the resurrection of human bodies was very much tied to God's justice, especially justice for faithful ones, martyrs unjustly slain by a wicked overlord. Their lives were taken, and so God in a supreme act of justice, would raise them up on the last day and hand them back their lives, including their bodies. I also shared with you how St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 cast the promise of the resurrection as a kind of new second creation story. Thanks to Christ, the second Adam, we are told by Paul that we will be raised to new life. And all of this is the work of God, the creator and the sustainer of life. And that's what we celebrate in this Easter season. Alleluia, he is risen. Thank you. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. And God even now is making creation great and good again. This is what we confess. This is what we hope. Now some of you, at least those of you with platonic leanings, may not want your bodies back. And I'm still debating this issue myself. So what I said in my sermon may have troubled you. I know it troubled you because you chatted with me in the fellowship hall after services. Some of you were wondering, well, what happens? What happens? What happens to me at the time of my death? Do I take the dirt nap, that long slumber, 
or does my soul return immediately to God? Well, I'll leave you to think on that. If you have questions, old St. Paul again in 1 Corinthians 15 has a bit of advice for us. After his long discussion about the resurrection of the dead, his discussion about death, the return of Christ, he says this, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, be immovable, and always be excelling in the work of the Lord. Because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Always excelling in the work of the Lord. If you get busy and do a little bit more work, the theological questions won't bother you. Take this as a bit of pastoral advice today. Get busy. Get busy. Get to work knowing all the time that God will speak the last word over all of us and it will all be well, it will be well, it will be well. Paul is saying trust in God and in the meantime, between now and eternity, excel, brothers and sisters, excel in the work of the Lord. Well, what does he mean by work of the Lord? Things we Christians do, such as preaching, teaching, evangelizing, providing us with music, lovely music on a Sunday morning. Well, Paul gives ample clues what he has in mind. He has been talking about a new creation. He's been talking about bodies from dust being changed into imperishable bodies. He's talked about a first Adam. He's talked about a second Adam. What does Paul have in view here regarding the work of the Lord? It's obvious. Creation, creation, creation. That's why Ruth read for us Genesis chapter 1 today. This chapter describes the very first work of God. And it is an amazing chapter. And as Ruth read it to you, I hope you heard the many repetitions that were embedded in the story, in the narrative. You heard many phrases repeated. And through the repetitions, I think you came to realize this is a very well-crafted story. It's got a rhythm to it. It's got a rhythm. It really isn't prose, it's poetry. It's musical. And as she read it, you and the bell choir, you should have been ringing your bells. It's a lovely story. But here's what I learned long ago. It's underappreciated in Christian circles. Because it's the first story in the Bible and it's just there and we're familiar with it. And we just take it at face value and go on. Well, what I learned years ago is you cannot take this story at face value. If you do, you lose its true beauty and its depth. What I'm telling you is you have to do what I had to do in a seminar many years ago. Read it in parallel with 
the other creation accounts that come from the ancient world. And only when you place them side by side in parallel can you appreciate the sheer beauty of this text from Genesis 1. It is awe-inspiring. So let me tell you a few of the ways in which it differs from older, contemporary creation accounts, especially one that was popular in old ancient Babylon. In the pagan account, all of creation, everything you see, the plants, the birds, the sea monsters, and human beings all exist for one reason and one reason only, to benefit the gods, to keep the gods happy, nourished, content. Human beings were the first worker bees, according to that old creation account. Humans essentially are the slaves of the immortal ones. They work hard, nonstop, so that the gods, the divine ones, can have their rest. Or to use a more modern bit of history, we humans are slaves in the cotton fields while the gods, the southern plantation owners, just sit on the veranda and watch us sweat and work and bleed, sipping their mint juleps. Another aspect of that pagan creation story is it's a bloody affair. Everything that happens is due to violence, due to bloodshed, even in heaven itself. Gods are killing other gods. It's a nasty business. One commentator has called that Babylonian creation story the myth of redemptive violence. It gives permission to kings and rulers, cultures in the ancient world to go and destroy any other culture, any enemy that moves your cheese or samples a bit of your cheese. Anyone that changes your life, not for the better, but for the worse, deserves absolute destruction. The theme of the Babylonian creation account is drill, baby, drill, exploit, 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 kill, baby, kill. It is the most stupid and laziest ideology that has ever been tossed around in human hearts and minds. But did you hear of any violence at all as Ruth read for you Genesis 1? No, you didn't. It is peaceable from beginning to end. There is no violence and there is no bloodshed. That's remarkable. And what's more remarkable is the role of human beings. They are not slaves. They are co-workers with God. Well, let me review just some of the repetitions so you get into the rhythm of this, this story. God said, let there be, and there was. And then God saw that it was good. 
And then it was morning and evening, the something day. And that just gets repeated and repeated and repeated. And you're told over and over again that everything, every work of God is good, good, good. And then at the end, we have the climax of the story. God creates humankind, you and me. He says, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And so he created humankind in the image of God. He created them. And I would add, and it was good. It was good. Do you get the picture? All of creation just teeming, filled to overflowing with life. And then at the end of the story, at its climax, a special call, command, is placed upon a special creature. Human beings. They are entrusted with a holy vocation on day six. And notice, dear people, this command is not just to the Jewish people. It's not just to Christians. It is to all humanity of every time and every place. All humans have work to do, godly work. We are to continue, you see, the life-giving life-fostering, creative work of God. Most of you are familiar with what we call the Great Commission. Go ye therefore into all the world, teaching, preaching, baptizing, making disciples. That's a Great Commission. But here's what I want you to know today. This text from Genesis 1 is the first commission placed upon all human beings. It is the call to always and everywhere be pro-life as God was pro-life. I think it is not just our first, but perhaps our highest call. Because each of us bears the image of God. Genesis 2. Ruth did not read that chapter for you, nor Genesis 3. We didn't want her to run out of gas because she still had work to do directing the choir. But the story continues, you know. This vocation to be godlike, to be godlike, ruling over and subduing creation. How do we even go about that? Well, Genesis 1 gives us a rather beautiful view of it. It is to do the very things God did on day one, day two, day three create and foster life, allow life to flourish. But how do we go about that? 
It's not a simple vocation. It takes what the story of Adam and Eve calls the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge God possesses. Good and evil. Knowing the difference between those things that foster life, not just your own, but other life as well. Distinguishing that from those things that harm and destroy life. That is the knowledge of good and evil. And this knowledge isn't for children. It's for mature people of faith. It's for adults. So you can't come at it just by memorizing one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, up to ten commandments. That's not going to work. That's child's play. You need a deeper, more holy knowledge and discernment of what this good and evil consists of. Where do you go to find it? Where is it located? How do you find this discernment that guides and frees you to do the good, to carry out your God-given vocation? Well, since I'm an Old Testament kind of guy, I would tell you to spend some time in the first five books of the Old Testament, the books the Jews, Jewish people call the Torah. You'll find that law to be a wonderful map for sustaining God's good creation for mapping out good and evil. And that's why at the end of the fifth book in the Old Testament, the call goes out, choose, choose life. Now that you've seen what it is in this wonderful law given as a gift through Moses to God's own people. So you can stay in the Old Testament if you want. I think there you'll find many examples, many narratives, many stories that unpacks this amazing holy knowledge. On the other hand, take Paul's advice and concentrate on the second Adam. The second Adam who got it all right the second Adam who was faithful in God's call to be absolutely and at all time pro-life. Jesus himself. Turn to him. Know the stories of his life. Tuck away in your heart those things that he did. Things like healing the sick, feeding the hungry, washing tired and dirty feet. Remember those things. And then do them. Do them. Do them. And I think you heard that in the second lesson today that our sister Ruth read for you. To say you have faith... So what? Get busy. Get busy with your hands. Get busy doing the work of God. 
follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Do what he did. Be overcome with his faithfulness to his vocation. Let your own life be filled with that same faithfulness to the first and perhaps highest and holiest commission. In the name of the Father, choose life. In the name of the Son, choose life. In the name of the Holy Spirit, always and everywhere, choose life. Amen.